Hey everyone, every year I do a personal challenge. So something like writing an AI to help control my home or, or trying to learn Mandarin. For the last couple of years, I've focused most of my time on addressing some of the biggest social issues facing Facebook and the internet overall. And we made a lot of progress on these, but there's still a lot more to do. That's gonna continue to be a focus for a while. Uh, this year though, my challenge is to get out and to have a series of discussions on the future of technology and the internet and how that's going to affect our society. So um, big questions around how we can keep on giving people a voice, uh, where we want uh, to encrypt things and, uh, and things like where we can decentralize uh, the tools that we give people. There are a lot of important questions to ask here. So today I am in Boston and I'm heading over to Cambridge uh, to have a discussion with Professor Jonathan Zittrain, who's the head of the Berkman Klein Center and a professor at Harvard Law. And he's one of the foremost experts at the intersection of technology and law and how these issues relate to society. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation and thank you for tuning in. So uh, thank you, Mark, for coming to uh, talk to me and to our students from the Techtopia program uh, and from my Internet and Society course uh, at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, we're really pleased to have a chance to talk about any number of uh, issues, and we should just dive right in. So uh, privacy, autonomy, and information fiduciaries. All right. I'd love to talk about yeah, that. I, I read your piece in the New York Times. The one with the headline that said, Mark Zuckerberg can fix this mess? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although that was last year. <laughs> That's true. Are you suggesting it's all fixed? No, no. Okay, good. So uh, I'm, I'm suggesting that I'm curious whether you think, still think that we can fix this mess. Ah, uh, <laughs> I hope <laughs> hope springs eternal yeah, there is you go. my motto. Um, so all right, let me uh, give a quick characterization of this idea that uh, the coinage and the, the scaffolding for it is from my colleague Jack Balkin at Yale. And the two of us have been developing it out further. There are a standard number of privacy questions with which you might have some familiarity having to do with people conveying information that they know they're conveying or they're not so sure they are, but mouse droppings as we used to call them when they uh, uh, run in the rafters of the internet and uh, leave traces. And then uh, the standard way of talking about that is you wanna make sure that that stuff doesn't go where you don't want it to go. And I call that informational privacy. We don't want people to know stuff uh, that we want maybe our friends only to know. And on a place like Facebook, you're supposed yeah. to be able to tweak your settings and yeah. say, give them to this and not to that. But there's also ways in which stuff that we share with consent could still sort of be used against us. And it feels like, well, you consented may not end the discussion. And the analogy that mm -hmm. my colleague Jack brought to bear was one of a doctor and a patient, or a lawyer and a client, or sometimes in America, but not always, a financial advisor and a client, that says that those professionals have certain expertise, they get trusted with all sorts of sensitive information from their clients and patients, and so they have an extra duty to act in the interests of those clients, even if their own interests conflict. Yeah. And so uh, maybe just one quick hypo to get us started. I wrote a, a piece in 2014 that maybe you read that was um, a hypothetical about elections in which it said, um, just hypothetically, 
imagine that Facebook had a view about which candidate should win, and uh, they reminded people likely to vote for the favored candidate that it was election day, and to others they simply set a cat photo. Would that be wrong? And I find, um, I don't have no idea if it's illegal. Um, <clears throat> it does seem wrong to me, and it might be that the fiduciary approach captures what makes it wrong. Hmm. All right, so I think we could probably spend the whole next hour just talking about that. Um, you know, so I, 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 did, I read your, your op-ed, and I, I also read um, Balkan's blog post on, on information fiduciaries, mm -hmm. and I've, I've, I've had a conversation with him, too. Great. Um, and the, at, at first blush, kind of reading through this, my reaction is there, there's a lot here that makes sense, right? I mean, the, the idea of, of us having a fiduciary relationship with the people who use our services is kind of intuitively, it's how we think about, about building what we're, what we're building, right? So, so reading through this, it's like, all right, you know, a, a lot of people um, seem to have this mistaken notion that, you know, where, when we're putting together newsfeed and doing ranking, that we have a team of people who are focused on maximizing the time that people spend, but that's actually, that's not the goal that we give them. We, we, we tell people to, the, on the team, um, produce the, the service that we think is gonna be the highest quality, um, that we, we try to ground it in, in, in kind of um, getting people to come in and, and tell us, right, of the content that they, that, um, that we could potentially show what is gonna be, they tell us what they wanna see, and then we build uh, models that, that kind of, that can, that can predict that and build that service. And, and by the way, was that always the case, or was that a place no, you got no. to through some course adjustments? Um, through course adjustments. I mean, you start off using simpler sig signals like, um, like what people are clicking on in feed, but then you pretty quickly learn, hey, that gets you to a local optimum, right? Where um, if, you're, if you're focusing on what people click on and predicting what people click on, then you select for clickbait, right? So pretty quickly you, you realize from, from real feedback, from real people, um, that's not actually what people want. You're not gonna build the best service by doing that, so you bring in people to, and actually have these panels of, um, you know, we call it getting to ground truth, of you show people all the candidates for what, what can be shown to them, um, and you have people say, what's the most meaningful thing that I wish that this system were showing us? So all this is kind of a way of saying that our own self-image of ourselves and what we're doing is that we're acting as fiduciaries and trying to build the best services for people. Uh -huh. Where I think that this ends up getting interesting is then the question of who gets to decide in the legal sense or, or the policy sense of what's in people's best interest. Right? So we come in every day and think, hey, you know, we're, we're building a service where we're ranking newsfeed, trying to um, show people the most relevant content with an assumption that's backed by data that, uh, that in general, you know, people want us to show them the most relevant content. Um, but, but at some level, you could ask the question, which is, who gets to decide that ranking newsfeed or, um, or showing relevant ads or any of the other things that we choose to work on um, are actually in people's interest? And you know, we're doing the best that we can to try to build the service that we think are the best. At the end of the day, a lot of this is grounded in people choose to use it, right? Because clearly they're getting some value from it. Um, but then there are all these questions, like you say, about um, you know, you, you have uh, about where people can can effectively give consent and, and not. Yes. Um, so I think that there's a lot of interesting questions in yes. this to unpack about how you'd actually implement a model like that. But at a high level, I think. You know, one of the things that I, that I think about in terms of, and we're, we're running this big company, 
Um, you know, it's important in society that people trust the institutions of, of society. Clearly, I think we're in a position now where people rightly have a lot of questions about, about big internet companies, Facebook in particular. Um, and, and I do think getting to a point where there's like the right regulation and rules in place just provides a kind of societal guardrail framework where people can have confidence that, okay, these companies are, are operating within a framework that we've all agreed. That's better than them just doing whatever, whatever, they, uh, whatever they want. And I think that that would give people confidence. So figuring out what that framework is, I think, is, is a really important thing. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that as it yes. relates to, to a lot of the content areas today. But getting to that question of how do you... Um, who determines um, what's in people's best interest, if not people themselves, Yes, um, is, is a really interesting question. Yes. So we should surely talk about that. So on our agenda is the who decides right. question. Other agenda items include, um, just as you say, the fiduciary framework sounds nice to you, doctors, patients, uh, Facebook users. And uh, I hear you saying that's pretty much where you're wanting to end up anyway. There are some interesting questions about what people want versus what they want to want. Yeah. People will say, uh, on January 1st, what I want, New Year's resolution, is a gym membership. Uh -huh. um, and then on January 2nd, they don't want to go to the gym. They want to want to go to the gym, but yeah. they never quite make it. And then, of course, a business model of pay for the whole year ahead of time, and they mm -hmm. know you'll never turn up, develops mm -hmm. around that. And uh, I guess... A specific area to delve into for a moment on that might be on the advertising side of things. Um, maybe the dichotomy between personalization and does it ever go into exploitation? Now there might be stuff, I know Facebook for example bans payday loans mm -hmm. as best it can. Uh, that's just a substantive area that it's yeah. like, all right, we don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. But when we think about good personalization so that Facebook knows I have a dog and not a cat mm -hmm. and a targeter can then offer me dog food and not cat food. How about, if not now, a future day in which an advertising platform can offer to an ad targeter some sense of, I just lost my pet, I'm really upset, um, uh, I'm ready to make some snap decisions that I might regret later, but when I make them, mm -hmm. I'm gonna make them. So this is the perfect time to tee mm -hmm. up yeah. a cubic zirconia or whatever the thing is that, mm -hmm. That seems to me a fiduciary approach would say, ideally, how, how we get there, I don't know, but mm -hmm. ideally, we wouldn't permit that kind of approach to somebody using the information we've gleaned from them to know they're in a tough yeah. spot and then to exploit them. But I don't know. I don't know how you would think about something like that. Could you write an algorithm to detect well, something like that? Well, I think one of the key principles is that we're trying to run this company for the long term. right? And I, I think that people think that a lot of things that you, if you were just trying to optimize the profits for next quarter or something like that, you, you might want to do things that people might like in the near term, but over the long term will come to resent. But if you actually care about building a community and, and achieving this mission and, and building the company and, for, for the long term, you just, I think you're much more aligned than, than people often think companies are. And it gets back to the, the idea before where, you know, I think it, like our self-image is largely acting as in this kind of fiduciary relationship, as, as you're saying, um, which is, and, and across, uh, we could probably go through a lot of different examples. I mean, we don't want to show people content that they're going to click on and engage with, but then feel like they wasted their time afterwards. Where we don't want to show them things that they're going to make a decision based off of that and then regret later. 
I think that there's a hard balance here, which is, I mean, if you're if you're talking about what people um, want to want versus what they want, um, you know, often people's revealed preferences of what they actually do shows a deeper sense of what they want than what they think they want to want. So I think that there's an, so I think that there's a question between when something is exploitative versus when something is real but isn't what you would say that you want. Yes. And that's a really hard thing to get at. Yes. Um, but on a lot of these cases, um, my experience of running the company is that you start off building a system, you have relatively unsophisticated signals to start, and you build up increasingly complex models over time that try to take into account more of what people care about. Um, and I mean, there are all these examples that we can go through. I think probably newsfeed and ads are probably the two most complex yes. um, ranking e examples that we have. Um, but it's like we were talking about a second ago. I mean, when we started off with the systems, I mean, just start with newsfeed, but you, you could do this on ads too. You know, the most naive signals are what, what people click on, what people like. Um, but then you just very quickly realize that that doesn't, it's, it, it approximates something, but it's a very crude approximation of, of the ground truth of what people actually care about. Mm -hmm. um, so what you really want to get to is as much as possible getting real people um, to look at the real candidates for content and tell you in a multi-dimensional way what matters to them and try to build systems that model that. And then you want to be kind of conservative on, on um, preventing downside. So your example of the payday loans, you know, when we've talked about this in the past, you're, you, you, you've put the question to me of you know, how do you know when um, a payday loan is going to be uh, exploitative, right? If you're targeting someone who is in a bad situation. And our answer is, well, we don't really know when it's going to be exploitative, but we think that the whole category potentially has a massive risk of that, so we just ban it. Which makes right? it an easy case, but um, yes. Yes, um, yes. And I think that the harder cases are when there's significant upside and significant downside, and you want to, um, and you want to weigh both of them. So, I mean, for example, after, you know, once we, once we, uh, started putting together a really big effort on preventing election interference. One of the initial ideas that, that came up was why don't we just ban all ads that relate to anything um, that is political? And then, okay, you, you pretty quickly get into, all right, well, what's a political ad? You know, the classic legal definition is things that are around elections and candidates, but that's not actually what um, what Russia and other folks um, were primarily doing, right? It's, it's, it's um, you know, a lot of the, the, the issues that we've seen are around issue ads, right? And, and basically sowing division on, on what are social issues. So, all right, you're, I don't think you're going to get in the way of people's speech and ability to, to promote and do advocacy on issues that they care about. Um, but so then the question is, all right, well, so then what's the right balance of, of how do you make sure that you're, um, that you're providing um, the right level of controls that people who aren't supposed to be um, participating in these debates aren't, or uh, that at least you're, you're providing the right transparency. But I think we, we've, we've veered a little bit from the original question. But, yes. um, but the, but, but yeah, okay. So let's, let's get back to where you, where you were. Where well, you were here's, about. I mean, this is a, a way of maybe moving it forward, which is a platform as uh, complete as Facebook is these days, offers lots of opportunities to shape what people see and possibly to help them with those nudges that it's time to go to the gym or to avoid them from falling into the depredations of a payday loan. And there is a question of, so long as the platform is in a position to do it, does it now have an ethical obligation 
to do it, to help people achieve the good mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worry that it is too great a burden for any company to bear to have to figure out, say, if not the perfect, the most reasonable news feed for every one of the, how many? Two and a half billion active users? Something like that. Yeah, on, on that order. Uh, uh, all the time. And there might be some ways that start a little bit to get into the engineering of the thing that would say, okay, with all hindsight, are there ways to architect this so that the stakes aren't as high, aren't as focused on mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. gosh, is Facebook doing this right? It's as if there were only one newspaper in the whole world, or one or two, and it's like, well, then what the New York Times chooses to put on its homepage, if it were the only newspaper, would have outsize mm -hmm. importance. Um, so just as a technical matter, um, a number of the students in this room had a chance to hear from Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, and he has a new idea for something called Solid. I don't know if you've heard of Solid. Um, it's uh, a protocol more than it is like a product, so there's no car to move off the lot today. But uh, its idea is allowing people to have the data that they generate as they motor around the web end up in their own kind of data locker. Now, for somebody like Tim, it might mean literally in a locker under his desk, and he could wake mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night and see where his data is. For others, it might mean a rack somewhere, guarded perhaps by a fiduciary who's looking out for them, the way that we put money in a bank, and yeah. then we can sleep at night knowing the bankers are, it's maybe not the best analogy in 2019, but blockchain. Um, we'll so get we'll get there. Um, but Solid says, if you did that, people would then, or their helpful proxies, be able to say, all right, Facebook is coming along, it wants the following data from me, and including data that it has generated about me as I use it, but stored back in my locker, and it kind of has to come back to my well to draw water each time. And that way, if I want to switch to Schmacebook or something, it's still in my well, and I can just immediately grant permission to Schmacebook to see it. I don't have to do a kind of data slurp and then re-upload it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a fully distributed way of thinking about data. And I'm curious, from an engineering perspective, does this seem doable with something of the size and the number of spinning wheels that Facebook has? And does it seem like a, yeah. I'm curious your reaction to an idea like that. Um, so I think it's quite interesting. Um, you know, certainly the level of computation that Facebook is doing and all the services that we're, that we're building is really intense to do in a distributed way. I mean, I think um, as a basic model, I think we're building out the data center capacity over the next five years um, you know, in our plan um, for what we think we need to do that we think is on, on the order of all of what AWS and Google Cloud are doing for supporting all of their customers. Um, so, okay, so this is like a relatively computationally intense thing. Over time, you assume you'll get more compute, so decentralized things which are less efficient computationally will be harder. Uh, sorry, will be, they're, they're harder to, to, to do computation on, um, but eventually maybe you have the compute resources to do that. I think the more interesting questions there are not um, feasibility in the near term, but are the philosophical questions of the, the goodness of a system like that. So you know, one, one question, if you want to, so we can get into to decentralization. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is a use of blockchain that I 
am potentially I interested in, although I haven't figured out a way to make this work out, is around authentication and bringing and, and basically granting access to um, to your information to different services. So basically, replacing the notion of what we have with Facebook Connect with um, with something that's fully distributed. Do you want to log in with your Facebook account? Is the status quo? Or you're, you're, yes. you basically you take your information, you store it on some decentralized system, and you can, you have the choice of whether to log in. Um, to, to different places, and you're not going through an intermediary, huh. which is kind of like what you're what what, what you're suggesting here, in, yes. in, in in a sense. Okay, now there's a lot of things that I think would be quite attractive about that. Um, you know, for developers, one of the things that is really troubling about working with our system or Google system for that matter, or having to deliver your services through Apple's App Store, is uh, you, you don't want to have an intermediary between serving um, serving your the, the, the people who are using your service and, and, and you, right? Where someone can just say, hey, um, we, we as a developer have to follow your policy, and if we don't, then you can cut off access to, to the people we're serving. That's um, kind of a difficult and, and troubling position to be in. So I, I can't think tell developers. If you're referring to a recent incident. Uh, no, well, I, I was, well, <laughs> sure, but, um, <laughs> but, but I think it, it underscores the. Um, I think every developer probably feels this. People are using um, any any app store, but also login with with Facebook, with Google, any of these services. Yes, you you want a direct relationship with with the yes. people you serve. Now, okay, but let's look at the flip side. So, what we saw in the last couple of years with Cambridge Analytica was basically an example where people chose to take data that they. Uh, that there was some of it was their data, some of it was data that that they had seen from from their friends, right? Because if you want to do things like making it so alternative services can build a competing newsfeed, then you need to be able to make it so that people can bring um, their the data that they see within the system. Okay, so so they so basically people um, chose to give their data to a developer who's affiliated with Cambridge University, which is a really you know, respected institution, and then that developer turned around and sold the data. Uh, to the firm Cambridge Analytica, which is in violation of our policies. Um, so we, we cut off the developer's access. And of course, in a fully distributed system, there would be no one who could cut off the developer's access. So the question is, if you have a fully distributed system, it dramatically empowers individuals on the one hand, but it really raises the stakes. And it gets to your questions around, well, what are the boundaries on consent and, and how people um, can, can really actually effectively know that they're, they're giving consent to an institution. In some ways, it's a lot easier to regulate um, and hold accountable large companies um, like Facebook or Google because they're more, they're, more they're more visible, they're more transparent than the long tail of services that people would choose to then go interact with directly. So I think this is a really interesting social question. Yes. Um, it, to some degree, I think this idea of going in the direction of like blockchain authentication is less gated on, um, on the technology uh, and, and capacity to do that. I think if you were doing fully decentralized Facebook, that would take massive computation. But I'm sure we could do fully decentralized authentication if we wanted to. I think the real question is, do you really want that? Yes. Right. And like, and and, and I think you'd have more cases where yes, people would would be able to um, not have an intermediary, but you'd also have more cases of abuse, and the recourse would be much harder. Yes. I mean, what I hear you saying is. People, as they go about their business online, are generating data about themselves that's quite valuable, if not to themselves, to others who might interact with them. And the more they are empowered, possibly through a distributed system, to 
decide where that data goes, with whom they want to share it, the more they could be exposed to exploitation. This is a genuine dilemma, because I'm a yeah. huge fan yeah. of decentralization. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I also see the problem. And maybe one answer is there's some data that's just so toxic, there's no vessel we should put it in that might eat a hole through it or something, metaphorically speaking. Um, but then again, innocuous data can so quickly be assembled into something scary. So I but don't I think know that's what collection. We're I mean, yeah. I think in general, we're talking about the large scale of, of, of data being assembled into meaning something different from what the individual data points mean. Yes. Um, and I think that that's, that's the whole challenge here. Um, but I philosophically agree with you that, I mean, I, I, I want to think about, the, like, I, I, I do think about the work that we're doing as a decentralizing force in the world, right? A lot of, a lot of the reason why I think people of, of my generation got into technology is because we believe that technology gives individuals power um, and, and isn't massively centralizing. Now, you, you've built a bunch of big companies in, in the process, but, but I think that what, what has largely happened is that individuals today have more voice, more ability to affiliate with who they want and stay connected with people, ability to form communities in ways that they couldn't before. And I think that that's massively empowering to individuals, and that's philosophically kind of the side that I tend to be on. So that's why I'm, I'm thinking about um, you know, going back to decentralized or blockchain authentication, that's why I, I, I'm like kind of bouncing around. How could you potentially make this work? Because um, from my orientation is to try to go in that direction. Yes. An example where I think we're, we're generally a lot closer to going in that direction is encryption. Um, I mean, this is like I think one of the one of the really big um, debates today is um, basically where are the boundaries on where you would want um, a messaging service to be encrypted, and there are all these benefits from a privacy and security perspective. But on the other hand of what we're trying to do, one of the big issues that we're, that we're grappling with is content governance and where's the, where's the, the, the line between free expression and, and I suppose privacy on one side, but safety on, on the others. People do really bad things right, some of the time. And, and, and I think people rightfully have an expectation of us that we're going to do everything we can to you know, stop terrorists from recruiting people or people from exploiting children or doing different things. And, and moving in the direction of making these systems more encrypted um, certainly reduces some of the signals that we would have access to um, to be able to do some of that really important work. Yes. But here we are, right? We're sitting in this, in this position where we have, we're, we're running WhatsApp, which is the largest end-to-end encrypted service in the world. We're running Messenger, which is another, uh, one of the largest messaging systems in the world where encryption is an option, um, but it isn't the default. I, I don't think long-term um, it really makes sense to be running different systems with, with very different policies on this. I think this is like sort of a philosophical question where you want to figure out where you want to be on it. And so, so here's so my question for you, um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how I'm thinking about this, is all right, if you were in my position and, and you, you got to flip a switch is probably too glib because there's a lot of work that goes into this, and, and go in, in one direction for, for both of those services, how would you think about that? Well. The question you're putting on the table, which is a hard one, is, is it okay, and let's just take the simple case, for two people to communicate with each other in a way that makes it difficult for any third party to casually listen in? Is that okay? And I think the way we normally answer that question is kind of a form of what you might call status quoism, which is not satisfying. It's whatever yeah. has been yeah. the case yeah. is what should stay the case. I, yeah. 
And so for WhatsApp, it's like right now, WhatsApp, as I understand it, you could correct me if I'm wrong, is pretty hard to get into if, if um, Facebook- it's, it's fully intent encrypted. Right, so yeah. Facebook gets handed a subpoena or a warrant or something from name your favorite country. Yeah. And you're just like, thank you for playing. We have nothing oh, for yeah, you. Oh yeah, we've right. had we've had employees thrown in jail because we have gotten court orders that we have to turn over data that we wouldn't probably anyway. But um, but we can't because yes. it's encrypted. Yes. And then on the other hand, and this is not as clean as it could be in theory, but Messenger is sometimes encrypted, sometimes not. If it doesn't happen to have been encrypted by the users, mm -hmm. then that subpoena could work. And more than that. There could start to be some automated systems, either on Facebook's own initiative or under pressure from governments in the general case, not a specific warrant, to say, hey, if the following phrases appear, if there's some telltale that says this is somebody going after a kid for exploitation, it should be forwarded up. If that's already happening and we can produce X number of people who have been identified and a number of crimes averted that way, who wants to be the person to be like, lock it down? Like, we don't want any more of that. But I guess to put myself now to your question, when I look out over years rather than just weeks or months, um, the ability to casually peek at any conversation going on between two people or among a small group of people, or even to have a machine do it for you. So you can just set your alert list, you know, crudely speaking, mm -hmm. and get stuff back. That, uh, it's always trite to call something Orwellian, but it makes Orwell look like a piker. I mean, it's, it seems like a classic case where you, the next sentence would be, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and uh, we can fill that in. And it does mean, though, I think that we have to we have to confront the fact that if we choose to allow that kind of communication, then uh, there's gonna be crimes unsolved that could have been solved. There's gonna be crimes not prevented that could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that kind of blunts it a little is it is not really all or nothing. The modern surveillance states of note in the world have a lot of arrows in their quivers. And just being able to darken your door and demand surveillance of a certain kind, that might be a first thing they would go to, but they've got a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D. And I guess it really gets to what's your threat model. If you think everybody is kind of a threat, think about the battles of copyright 15 years ago. Everybody is a potential infringer. All they have to do is fire up Napster. Then you're wanting some massive technical infrastructure to prevent the bad thing. If what you're thinking is instead, there are a few really bad apples, and they tend to, when they congregate online or otherwise with one another, tend to identify themselves, and then we might have to send somebody near their house to mm -hmm. listen with a cup at the window, mm -hmm. metaphorically speaking. You know, that's a different threat model and might yeah. not need it. Is that, is that getting to an answer to your question? Yeah, and, and I, I think I generally agree. I mean, I, I've, I've already said publicly that my, my inclination is to move these services in the direction of being all encrypted. Um, at least the, the private communication version. I, I basically think, you know, if you, you want to kind of talk in, 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 um, in, in metaphors, messaging is like people's living room, right? And I think we, um, you know, we, we definitely don't 
uh, I think, want a society where there's a camera in everyone's living room watching the content that um, of, of those conversations. Even as we're now, I mean, it is 2019, people are happily putting cameras in their but living rooms. But that's their choice. But, but, but yeah. I guess they're putting cameras in their living rooms um, well, for, for a number of reasons. But, um, and like Facebook has a camera that you can that, go that in your is, living room. That room. is, I guess. <laughs> just want to be clear. Yeah, although that would be encrypted in, in, um, in, in, in this Encrypted world. between you and Facebook. No, no, I think... It, but for, it also doesn't have like that, a little Alexa functionality, too? Well, Portal works over Messenger. So if we go towards in- encryption on Messenger, then that'll, be, then yeah. that'll be fully encrypted, which I think, frankly, is, is probably what people want. Yeah. The, the other model besides the living room is like the town square, right? And that, I think, just has different social norms and different policies and... Um, and, and norms that should be that should be at play around that, but I do yeah. think that these things are very different, right? You're not gonna, um, you may end up in a world where the town square is a fully decentralized or fully encrypted thing, but it's not clear what value there is in encrypting something that's public content yes. anyway, um, or, or very very broad. Um, but, but now you were put to it pretty hard, in that, as I understand it, there's now a change to how WhatsApp works that there's only five forwards permitted yeah, so, of something. So, so this, is, this is a really interesting point, right? So when, uh, when people talk about how encryption will darken some of the signals that, that we'll be able to use, um, you know, both for pro- potentially providing better services and for um, preventing harm, one of the, I guess, somewhat surprising to me f- findings um, of the last couple of years of working on um, content governance and enforcement is that it often is much more effective to identify um, fake accounts and bad actors upstream of them doing something bad by patterns of activity rather than looking at the content. So-called metadata. Sure. I don't know or, what they're saying, but here's who they're calling kind of thing. Uh, yeah, or just like they, this, doesn't, this account doesn't seem to really act like a person. Right, and I guess as AI gets more advanced and, and you build these adversarial networks or generalized adversarial networks, you'll, you'll get to a place where you have AI that can probably more effectively um, go under mimic, deep cover, mimic, mimic, act like a person behavior, for but, a while. But at the same yeah. time, you'll be building up um, you know, contrary um, AI on the other side that is better at identifying AIs that are, that are, that are doing that. Um, but this has certainly been the most effective tactic across a lot of the areas where we've needed to focus on preventing harm. Um, you know, the, the ability to identify fake accounts, um, which, like, the, a huge amount of, of the, under any category of, of issue that you're talking about, a lot of the, the, the issues downstream come from, from fake accounts or, or people who are clearly acting in some um, malicious or, or not normal way. Um, you can identify a lot of that without... Um, without necessarily even looking at the content itself. And if you have to look at a piece of content, then in some cases you're already late because the content exists and the activity has already happened. So, um, so that's one of the things that makes me feel like encryption for these messaging services is really the right direction to go because you're be- it's a very pro-privacy um, and, and pro-security move to, to give people that, that, that control and assurance. And I'm, I'm relatively confident that even though you are losing some tools to, um, on, on, the, um, on, on the finding harmful content side of the ledger, um, I, I don't think at the end of the day that those are going to end up being the most important tools yes. for finding the most of the, the, the But now connect content. it up quickly to the five forwards thing. Oh, yeah, sure. So, it, so that gets down to um, 
if you're not operating on a piece of content directly, you need to operate on patterns of behavior in the network. And what we basically found was there weren't that many good uses for people forwarding things more than five times except to basically spam or, or, or blast stuff out. Um, that it was being disproportionately abused. So you, you end up thinking about different tactics when you're not operating on content specifically. You end up thinking about patterns of usage well, um, more. Well, spam I get, and that I'm always in favor of things that reduce spam. Uh, however, you could also say the second category was just to spread content. You could have the classic, I don't know, like Les Mis or Paul Revere's Ride or Arab Spring esque in the romanticized vision of it, gosh, this is a way for people to do a tree and pass along a message that you can't stop the signal, to use a Joss Whedon reference. You really want to get the word out. Mm -hmm. um, this would obviously stop that too. Yeah, and then I think the question is, you're just weighing whether you want this private communication tool where the vast majority of the use and the reason why it was designed was you know, the, the vast majority is one-on-one. -on -one. Um, there's a large amount of groups that, that people communicate in two, um, but it's a pretty small edge case of people operating this with like, you have a lot of different groups and you're trying to organize something and yes. almost hack public content type um, or, or public sharing type uh, utility into, um, into an encrypted space. And again, there I think you start getting into, is this the living room or is this the town square? And when people start, um, trying to use the tools that are designed for one thing to get around what I think the social norms are for the town square, that's when I think you probably start to have some issues. Mm -hmm. um, this is not, we're, we're not done addressing these issues. There's a lot more to, yes. to think through on this, but, but that's the general shape of the problem that, that at least I, I perceive from the work that we're doing. Well, uh, without any particular segue, let's talk about fake news. So, <laughs> insert your favorite segue here. Um, there's some choice, or at least some decision that gets made to figure out what's going to be next in my newsfeed when I scroll up mm -hmm. a little more. And in the last conversation bit, we were talking about how much we're looking at content versus telltales and metadata, things that surround the yeah. content. For knowing about what that next thing in the newsfeed should be, mm -hmm. is it a valid, desirable material consideration, you think, for a platform like Facebook to say, is the thing we are about to present true? Whatever true means. Well, yes, because, again, getting at um, trying to serve people, people tell us that they don't want fake content, right? I mean, I don't know anyone who wants fake content. I think the, the whole issue is, again, a set who gets to decide, mm -hmm. right? So uh, broadly speaking, I, I don't know any individual who would sit there and say, yes, please show me things that you know are false and that are fake. Um, people want good quality content um, and information. That said, I don't really think that people want us to be deciding what is true for them. And people disagree on what is true. And like truth is, I mean, there, there are different levels of um, when someone is telling a story, maybe the, the meta arc is, is, is talking about something that is true, but the facts that were used in it are, are wrong in some, in some nuanced way, but like it speaks to some deeper experience. Well, is that true or not? And do people want that disqualified from being shown to them? Um, 
I think different people are going to come to different places on this. Now, so I've been very sensitive, uh, which uh, on on like, we really want to want to make sure that we're showing people high quality content and information. Um, we know that people don't want false information, um, so we're building quite advanced systems to be able to. Um, to, to make sure that we're, we're emphasizing and showing stuff that is going to be high quality. But the big question is, where do you get the signal on what the, what the quality is? So the, the kind of initial V1 of this was working with third-party fact-checkers. Right? I, I, I believe very strongly that people do not want um, Facebook and that we should not be the arbiters of truth in deciding what is correct for everyone in society. Um, I think people already generally think that we have too much power in, in deciding what content is, is, is good. Um, I tend to also be concerned about that and we should talk about the, some of the governance stuff that we're working on separately to try to make it so that we can bring more independent <laughs> oversight into that. Yes. But, Let's um, put that in a box for now and just say that with those concerns in mind, I'm definitely not looking to try to take on a lot more um, in terms of also deciding in addition to enforcing all the content policies, also deciding what is true for everyone in the world. Okay, so, so V1 of that is we're going to work with... Um, Truth experts. We're, we're working with fact checkers. Yeah. And, and they're... they're Experts and basically, there's like a whole field of, of how you um, how you go and, and, and assess certain content. They're accredited. Um, people can disagree with with the leaning of Who some of these organizations. Fact checkers. Um, okay. The Pointer Institute for, for Journalism. Oh, okay, good. Um, I apply and, for and my certification. You you you, you may. Yeah. Um, you'd probably get it, but you have to <laughs> you'd have to go through the process. Um, the issue there is there aren't enough of them. Right, so there's a large content, there's obviously a lot of, 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 of um, information is, is shared every day, um, and there just aren't a lot of fact checkers. Um, so then the question is, okay, that is probably... But the portion, you're saying the food is good, mm -hmm. it's just the portions are small. But the I food think in is general, good. but so you build systems, which is what we've done, especially leading up to elections, where I, I think are, are some of the most fraught times around this. Um, where people really are, are aggressively trying to spread yes. um, misinformation. You build systems that prioritize content that seems like it's going viral because you want to reduce the prevalence of, of, how, of, of how widespread this stuff gets. So that way the fact checkers have tools to be able to um, uh, like prioritize what they need to go, what they need to go look at. Um, but, it's, but it's still getting to a relatively small percent of the content. Um, so I think the real thing that we want to try to get to over time is more of a crowdsourced model, mm -hmm. where people—it's not that people are trusting some sort, some basic um, set of of, um, of experts who are accredited, um, but are in some kind of lofty institution somewhere else. It's like, do you trust? Like, if you, if you get enough data points from within the community of people reasonably looking at something and, and assessing. Uh, it, it over time, and the question is, can you compound that together into something that is a, a, a strong enough signal that we can then use that? Kind of in the old school, like a slash dot moderating system, with only the worry yeah. that if the stakes get high enough, somebody wants to astroturf that. Yes. I'd be... Um, there are a lot of questions here, which is why I'm not, I'm not sitting here and announcing a new program. Um, but, 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 but what I'm saying is this is, like, this yeah, is the yeah, general yeah. direction that I think we should be thinking about and we have, um, and, and I think that there's a lot of questions and, yes. and we'd like to run some tests in this area to see whether this can, can help out, uh, which would be upholding the principles, which are that we want to stop 
yes. the spread of misinformation, knowing yes. that no one wants misinformation. And the other principle, which is that we do not want to want be our decider. Truth. Yes, um, and I think that that's the basic. Those are the basic contours. I think of that of that problem. So let me run an idea by you uh, that we can process in real time and tell me the eight reasons I have not thought of why this is a terrible idea. Um, and that would be people see something in their Facebook feed. Um, they're about to share it out because it's got a kind of outrage factor to it. Um, I think of the classic story from two years ago in the Denver Guardian about um, uh, FBI agents suspected in Hillary Clinton email leak implicated in murder-suicide. I have just uttered fake news. None of that was true. If you clicked through to the Denver Guardian, there was just that article. There is no Denver Guardian. If you live in Denver, you cannot subscribe. Like, it is unambiguously fake. And it was shared more times than the most shared story during the election season of the Boston Globe. So, and so and this I is actually the, an example, by the way, of where trying to figure out fake accounts is a much simpler solution yes. than, than trying to down. So okay. if newspaper has one article, yeah, so, wait for 10 more before you decide they're a newspaper. Yeah, or, or you know, I mean, it's, there there are any number of systems that you could you could build to basically detect, hey, this is a Potemkin. This is a fraudulent yes. thing, and then you can take that down. And I think that ends up being a much less controversial decision because you're doing it upstream based on the the, the basis of inauthenticity yes. in a system where people are supposed to be their real and, and represent that they're they're their the real their real selves. Then downstream, trying to say, hey. Is this, is this true or false? I made a mistake in giving you the easy case. Okay. So well, I should not have used that example. Up. You're right, and you knocked that one out of the park. <laughs> and like, Denver Guardian, come up with more articles and be real, and then come back and talk to us. So um, uh, here's the harder case, which is something that might be in an outlet that is you know, viewed as legitimate, mm -hmm. has a number of users, et cetera. So you can't use the metadata as easily. Imagine if somebody, as they shared it out, could say, by the way, I want to follow this. I'm going to learn a little bit more about this. They click a button that says that. And I also realized when I talked earlier with somebody at Facebook at this that adding a new button to the home page is like everybody's first idea for something. Oh, yeah. and but it's, 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 a, it's, it's a reasonable thought experiment, even though it, fair it would lead to very I understand this UI. is already yeah. in the land of fantasy. So you add the button. They say, I want to follow up on this. If enough people are clicking comparatively on the same thing to say, I want to learn more about this. If anything else develops, let me know, Facebook. Um, that then, I have a, my mind of pneumatic tube, mm -hmm. it then goes to a convened virtually panel of three librarians. We go to the librarians of the nation and the world at public and private libraries across the land who agree to participate in this program. Maybe we set up a little foundation for it that's endowed permanently and no longer connected to whoever endowed it. And um, those librarians together discuss the piece and they come back with what they would tell a patron mm -hmm. if somebody came up to them and said, I'm about to cite this in my social studies paper, what do you think? And librarians like live for mm -hmm. questions like that. They're yeah. like, wow, let us tell you. And they have a huge fiduciary notion of mm -hmm. patron duty that says, I may disapprove of you even studying this, whatever, but I'm here to serve you, the user. Mm -hmm. And I just think you should know this is why maybe it's not such a good source. And when they come up with that, they can send it back and it gets pushed out to everybody who asked for follow-up and they can yeah. do with it as they will. And last piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. we have high school students <laughs> who apprentice as librarian number three for credit. <laughs> and then they can get graded on how well they participate in this exercise, which helps generate 
a new generation of librarian-themed people who are better off at reading things. All right, so. well, I think you, you have, you have a, a side goal here, which I haven't been thinking about on the, on the librarian thing. Um, <laughs> which is the evil goal but, of promoting libraries. Well, yes. it's, <laughs> no, but I mean, but I'm, I think solving uh, preventing misinformation or spreading misinformation is hard enough without also trying to, to develop high school students in a, in a direction. Ah, so, my colleague Charlie right, Nelson so calls this solving a problem with a problem. All right, well, but anyway, yes. Um, so I, I actually think I agree with, with most of what you have in there. It doesn't need to be a button on the homepage. It can be, I mean, it turns out that there's so many people using these services that even if you get, even if you put something that looks like it's not super prominent, like behind the three dots on a given newsfeed story, you have the options. Yeah, you're not, not everyone is gonna, is gonna go If one out of a thousand do it, you still get 10,000 or 100,000 people. But I actually yeah. think you can do even better, which is it's not even clear that you, you need that signal. I think that that's super helpful. I think really what matters is um, is looking at stuff that's getting a lot of distribution. So, you know, I think that there's there's kind of this notion. I mean, going back to the encryption conversation, which is all right. If I say something that's wrong to you in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I mean, does that need to be fact-checked? I mean, it's yeah, it would be good if 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 you got good if, if you got the most accurate. I do have a personal librarian to accompany me for most conversations. Yes. Well, you are. Usually, yeah, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> that's uh, that's the word I was looking for. Um, I'm not sure I believe you, but yes. Um, um, but I think that there's there's limited. I don't think anyone would say that every message that goes back and forth in in especially an encrypted messaging service should be fact uh, should be fact -checked. Correct. So I think the real question is, all right, when something starts going viral or getting a lot of distribution, that's when it becomes most socially important for it to, um, for it to be, have some level of, of, of validation or at least um, that, that we know where the, that the community in, in general thinks that this is a reasonable thing. So it's actually, while it's helpful to have the signal of whether people are flagging this as something that we should look at, I actually think increasingly you want to be designing systems that just prevent um, like alarming or sensational content from going viral in the first place. Um, and, and making sure that, 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 that the stuff that is getting wide distribution is, getting, is, is doing so because it's high quality um, on, on whatever front you care about. And that quality so then, okay. is still generally from pointer or some external well, party that... Well, quality has many dimensions, but yeah. certainly accuracy is is one dimension of it. You also, I mean, you, you pointed out, um, I, th I think in one of your questions, is this piece of content prone to to incite outrage? Um, if you if you, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll get to your, your your panel of three things in a second. But as a as a slight detour on this, yes. one of the the findings that has been quite interesting is um, you know, there's this question about whether social media in general. Um, increases, basically makes it so that sensationalist content gets the most distribution. And what we've found is that, all right, so we're going to have rules, right, about what, what content is allowed. Um, and what we found is that generally, within whatever rules you set up, um, as content approaches the line of, of what is allowed, um, it often gets more distribution. So if you, you, you'll have some rule on... Um, you know what? I mean, take a completely different example on our, our nudity policies, right? It's like okay, you, you have to define what is unacceptable nudity in some way. As you get as close to that as possible, it's like all right, like this is maybe a photo the skin of someone to share ratio goes up until it gets banned, at which point it goes to zero. Yes. Okay. So that is a bad property of a system. 
right, that I think you, you want to generally address. Right? You, don't want think, you don't want to design a, a community where, um, or, or systems for, for helping to build a community where things that get as close to the line as what is bad get the most distribution. So long as we have the premise which in many cases is true, but I could probably try to think of some where it wouldn't be true, that as you near the line, you are getting worse. That's a good point. You that's know, a good point. There might be humor that's really edgy. That's true. And that conveys a message that would be impossible to convey without the edginess while not still. But, that but is, I, that's, I, that's true. Yeah. So, but then you get the question of um, what's the cost benefit of, of allowing that? And obviously where you can accurately se separate what's good and bad um, which you, like in the case of misinformation, I'm not sure you can do it fully accurately, but you can try to build systems that approximate that. There's certainly the issue, which is that, I mean, there's, there's misinformation which leads to massive public harm, right? So if it's misinformation that is also spreading hate and leading to, to genocide or public attacks, or it's like, okay, we're not gonna allow that, right? That's coming down. Um, but then generally, if you say something that's wrong, we're not, we're not gonna try to block that. We're yes. just gonna try to not show it to, um, to people widely because people don't want content that is wrong. So then the question is, as something is approaching the line, um, how do you assess that? This is a general theme in, in a lot of the, the content uh, governance and enforcement work that we're doing, which is, there's, there's one piece of this, which is just making sure that we can, as effectively as possible, enforce the policies that exist. But then there's a whole other stream of work, which, which I call borderline content, um, which is basically this, this issue of as content approaches the line of, of, um, of being against the policies, how do you make sure that that isn't the content that is somehow getting the most uh, distribution? And, and a lot of the things that we've done in the last year we're focused on that problem, and it, and it really improves the quality of the service, and people appreciate that. So this idea would be stuff that you're kind of letting down easy without banning, and letting down easy as it's gonna somehow have a coefficient of friction for sharing that goes up. It's gonna be harder yeah. for it to go viral. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating because it's, it's just against, uh, uh, like you can take almost any category of, of um, of policy that we have. So I used nudity a second ago, um, you know, gore and violent imagery, yes. um, hate speech, any, any yes. of these things. I mean, there's like, like hate speech, there's t content that you would just say is mean or toxic, but that yes. would not violate, but that you would not want to have a society that banned being able to say that thing. I mean, but, it's, but you don't necessarily want um, that to be the content that, that is getting the most distribution. So here's a classic transparency question around exactly that system you described. And when you described this, I think you did a post around this mm -hmm. uh, a few months ago. This was fascinating. You had graphs in the post depicting this, uh, which was great. How would you feel about sharing back to the person who posted or possibly to everybody who encounters it, its coefficient of friction? Would that freak people out? Would yeah. it be like, all right, I, and in fact, they would then probably start conforming their posts for better or worse yeah. to try to maximize the shareability. But that, that rating is already somewhere in there by design. Mm -hmm. Would it be okay to surface it? Um, so as a principle, I think that that would be good. But I don't, the way that the systems are designed isn't that you get a score of how inflammatory or sensationalist a piece of content is. The way that it basically works is you can, you can build classifiers that identify specific types of, 
of things, right? So we're going down the list of like, all right, there's 20 categories of harmful content that you're trying to identify, you know, everything from um, terrorist propaganda um, on the one hand to self-harm issues, um, to hate speech and election interference. And basically each of these things, while it uses a lot of the same underlying um, machine learning infrastructure, you're doing specific work for each of them. So if you go back to the example on nudity for, for, for a second, you know what you, you're not necessarily scoring everything on the, um, on a scale of, of not at all nude to nude. You're basically enforcing specific policies. So you know, you're saying, okay. So by if, machine learning, it would just be, give me an estimate of the odds by which if a human looked at it who was employed well, to well, enforce the policy, you, whether it violates the policy. And you have a sense of, okay, this is, so what are the things that are adjacent to the policy, right? So you, you might say, okay, well, if, if the person is completely naked, that is something that you can, you can definitely build a, a, a classifier to be able to identify with relatively high accuracy. But even if they're not, um, you know, then the question is, you, you kind of need to be able to qualitatively describe what are the things that are adjacent to that. So maybe the person is wearing a bathing suit and is in a sexually suggestive position, right? It's, it's not like any piece of content you're going to score from not at all nude to nude. Um, but you, you kind of have the cases for what you think are adjacent to, to the issues. And, and again, you ground this in qualitatively. People, like, people might click on it. Um, they, they might engage with it, but at the end, they don't necessarily feel good about it. Um, and you, you want to get at, when you're designing these systems, not just um, what people do, but also how, you, you want to make sure we factor in, too, like, is this, is this the, the content that people say that they really want to be seeing? Do in they... constitutional law, there's a formal kind of definition that's emerged for the word prurient. If something appeals to the prurient interest okay. as part of a definition of obscenity, the famous uh, Miller test, um, which is not uh, a beer-oriented test. And um, uh, part of a prurient interest is basically, it excites me, and yet it completely disgusts me. And it sounds like you're actually converging to the Supreme Court's vision of prurience with this. Maybe. And it might be. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not trying to nail you down on that. Uh, but um, uh, it's very interesting that machine learning, you invoked, is both really good, I gather, at something like this. It's the kind of thing that's like, just have some people tell me, with their expertise, does this come near to violating the policy or not? And mm -hmm. I'll just, through a spidey sense, start to tell you whether it would, mm -hmm. rather than being able to throw out exactly what the factors are. I know the person's fully clothed, but it still is going to yeah. invoke that quality. So all of the benefits of machine learning and all of, of course, the drawbacks where yeah it classifies something and somebody's like, wait a minute, that was me doing a parody of blah, blah, blah. Um, that all comes to the fore. Yeah, and I mean, when you ask people what they want to see, in addition to looking at what they actually engage with, you do get a completely different sense of what people value, and you can build systems that, that, um, that approximate that. But, um, but going back to your question, I think rather than giving people a score of the friction. Yes. I think you can probably give people feedback of, hey, this might make people uncomfortable in this way, in this specific way. Uh, and this gets and might affect how much it gets, how much it gets shared. Yeah. And, and this, this gets down to a different, there's a different AI ethics question, which I think is really important here, 
which is designing AI systems to be understandable by people. Right? Yes. It, it, to some degree, you don't just want it to spit out a score of how offensive or, or, or how, like where it scores on, on any given policy. You want it to be able to map to specific things that might be problematic. Yes. And, and that's the way that we're trying to design the systems overall. Yes. Now, we have something parked in the box we should take out, which is the external review stuff. But before mm-hmm. we do, one other just transparency thing maybe to broach um, that basically just occurred to me. I imagine it might be possible to issue me a score of how much I've earned for Facebook this year. It could simply say, this is how much we collected on the basis of you in particular being exposed to an ad. Um, and, and sometimes people, I guess, yeah. might compete to get the numbers up. <laughs> but um, I'm just curious, would that be a figure? I'd kind of be curious to know, in part because it might even lay the groundwork of being like, look, Mark, I'll double it. You can have double the money, and then don't show me any ads. Can we get a car off that lot today? <laughs> um, Okay, well, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot in there. There's a quick question. Um, so there's a question in what you're saying, which is, um, so you, we, we build an ad-supported system. Should we have an option for people to pay to not see ads? I right. think is kind of what, what, you're, what you're saying. Um, I mean, just as, as the basic primer from first principles on this, you know, we, we're, we're building the service. We want to give everyone a voice. We want everyone to be able to connect with who they care about. If you're trying to build a service for everyone, be you want it to be as affordable that's, as that's possible. That's going to be the argument. Yes, okay. yes. So, then, right. so this is a kind of a tried and true thing. There are a lot of companies over time that have been ad-supported. In general, what we find is uh, that if people are going to see ads, they want them to be relevant. They don't want them to be junk. Right? So then within that, you give people control over how their data is used to show them ads. Um, but the vast majority of people say, like, show me the most relevant ads that you can because I, I, I get that I have to see ads. This is a free service. So now the question is, all right, so there's a whole set of questions around that that we could get into. But, but then, For which we did talk about, we don't have to reopen it, the personalization, exploitation, or even yeah. just philosophical question. Right now, Uber or Lyft are not funded that way. Mm-hmm. We could apply this ad model to Uber or Lyft. Free rides, totally free. It's just every fifth ride takes you to Wendy's and idles outside the drive-through window. <laughs> totally up to you what you want to do, but you're going to sit here for a while, and then you go on your way. I don't know how we uh, status quoism would probably say people would have a problem with that, but it would give people rides that otherwise wouldn't get rides. Um, I have not thought about that case in their, in their business. So, well, that's my patent, damn it! So don't you steal it. Certainly, some some. Some services, I think, tend themselves better towards being ad-supported than, than others. Okay. Um, okay, and I, and I think generally information-based ones tend to... Then my false imprisonment hypo. I, uh, yeah, so, okay, I mean, fair that, that seems... Um, yeah. Uh, there might be you know, more, more, uh, <laughs> more issues there. Um, but okay, but, but go to the subscription thing. Yes. When, when people have questions about the ad model on Facebook, I don't think the questions are just about the ad model, I think they're about both seeing ads and data use around ads. And the thing that I think, so, so when I think about this, it's, I, I don't just think you want to let people pay to not see ads, um, because I, I actually think then the question is, 
the questions are around ads and data use, and I don't think people are going to be that psyched about, about, about not seeing ads, but then not having different controls over how their data is used. Okay, but now you start getting into a principal question, which is, are we going to let people pay to have different controls on data use than other people? And my answer to that is a hard no. Right, so the, the prerequisite... What's an example of data use that isn't ad-based, just so we know what we're talking about? Um, that isn't ad-based? Ad what, yeah. what do you mean? You were saying, I don't want to see ads, but you're well, saying well, that's well, kind yeah. of just the wax on the car. What's so, underneath so think, is well, look, how the data gets used. Maybe let me keep going with this explanation, yeah, sure. and, then, and then I think this will, this will be clear. So one of the things that we've been working on is this tool that we call Clear History. And the basic idea is it is, um, you can kind of analogize it to a web browser where you can clear your, your cookies. Um, that's kind of a normal thing. You know that when you clear your cookies, you're gonna get logged out of a bunch of stuff. A bunch of stuff might get more annoying. Um, but Which is why my guess is, am I right? Probably nobody clears their cookies. I don't know. They might use incognito mode I or think, something, but. I don't know, how, how many of you guys clear your cookies? Every once in a while. This is right? not it's a representative right? group, damn it. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't, I, like maybe once a year or something, I'll clear my cookies. But no, it's, Happy I, New I, Year! I, I, clear your cookies. Some period of time. Right? Yeah. But, okay. Um, but but not, not not necessarily every day. Um, but it's important that people have that tool, even though it might, um, in a local sense, make their experience worse. Yes. Okay. So that kind of content of what different services, websites, and apps um, send to Facebook that you know we, we use to help measure the ads and effectiveness there. Right. So things like. Um, you know, if you're an app developer and you're, you're um, trying to pay for ads to help grow your app, um, we want to only charge you when we actually when something that we show leads to an install, not just whether someone um, sees the ad or, or clicks on it. But that if requires a whole infrastructure okay, so then, to yeah. yeah. So so you, so you build that out. Um, it helps us show people more relevant ads. It can help show more relevant content. Often a lot of these signals are super useful also on the security side for some of the other things that we've talked about. Um, so that ends up being important. But fundamentally, you know, looking at the model today, um, it seems like you should have something like this ability to clear history. Um, it turns out that it's a much more complex technical project. I, I talked about this at, um, at our developer conference last year about how I, I'd hoped that we'd roll it out. Um, by the end of 2018, and just the plumbing goes so deep into to all the different systems that, that it's. That, but we're but we're still working on it. We're gonna, we're going to do it. So it's clear just, history basically means I'm as if a noob. I just show even though I've been yes. using Facebook for a while, it's as if mm -hmm. it knows nothing about me, and it starts accreting again. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think, just as a plain old citizen, how would I make an informed judgment about how often to do that or when I should do it? What? Well, hold on. Let's, let's go to that in a second. But, okay. but one thing, just to connect the dots on the last conversation, yep. clear history is a prerequisite, I think, for being able to do anything like subscriptions. right? Because you, you, like par partially what, what someone would want to do, if, if they were going to really actually pay for a not ad-supported version where their data wasn't being used in a system like that, you would want to have a control so that Facebook didn't have access or wasn't using that data or associating it with your account. And as a principled matter, we are not going to just offer a control like that to people who pay. Right? That's gonna, if, if we're going we're gonna to give controls over data use, we're going to do that for everyone in the community. So that's the first thing that I think we need to go do. So that's, so that's kind of, this is sort of the, 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 um, how we're thinking about the projects. And this is a really deep and, and, and big technical project, but we're committed to doing it because I think it's And it's, I guess like an important. ad blocker, somebody could then write a little script for your browser that would just clear your history every time you visit or something. Oh, yeah, no, but the, the plan would also be to offer something that's an ongoing thing. I in, see. In, in, your, in your browser, uh, but I think the analogy here is, um, is 
you kind of have, in your browser, you have the ability to clear your cookies. And then, like in some other place, you have under your like nuclear settings, like don't ever accept any cookies in my browser. And it's like, all right, your browser's not really going to work that well. Yeah. But, but you can do that if you want because you should have that control. I, I think that these are part and parcel, right? It's, I think a lot of people might go and clear their history on a periodic basis because they, or, or actually in the, in the research that we've done on this as we've been developing it, the real thing that people have told us that they want is, um, similar to cookie management, not necessarily um, wiping everything because that that ends in in inconvenience of getting logged out of a bunch of things. But there are just certain services or apps that you don't want that data to be connected to your Facebook account. So having the ability on an ad hoc basis to go through and say, hey, stop associating this thing um, is going to end up being a, a quite important thing that I think uh -huh. we, wa we want to try to deliver. So that's this is partially as we're getting into this, it's a, it's a, it's a more complex thing. But I think it's it's very valuable. And I think if you, any conversation around um, the around subscriptions, I think you would want to start with giving people these uh, make sure that everyone has these kind of controls. So that's we're kind of in the early phases of doing that. The philosophical downstream question of whether you also let people pay to not have ads. Um, I don't know. There are a bunch of questions around whether around whether that's actually a good thing. But I personally don't believe that very many people would like to pay to not have ads. That all of the research that we have, it's it may still end up being the right thing to offer that that is a choice down the line. Um, but all the data that I've seen suggests that the vast, vast, vast majority of people yeah. want um, a, a free service, and and that the ads in, in a lot of places. Um, are not even that different from the organic content in terms of the quality of, of yeah. what people are being able to see. Um, people like being able to get get information from local yes. businesses and things like that too. So, um, so there's there's a lot of good there. Yeah, forty years ago it would have been the question of ABC versus HBO, and the answer turned out to be yes. Um, <laughs> so you're right; people might have different things. There's a little paradox yeah. lingering in there about. It's yeah. something so important and vital that we wouldn't want to deprive anybody of access to it, mm -hmm. but therefore nobody gets it until we figured out how to remove it for everybody. What, what In other words, if I could buy my way out of ads and data collection, it wouldn't be fair to those who can't, and therefore we all subsist with it until the advances you're talking about. Yeah, about. but I guess what I'm saying is, on the data use, I don't believe that that's something that people should buy. I, I think the data principles that we have need to be uniformly available to everyone. And uh, that's, that, to me, is a really important principle. And in, it's a, like Maybe you could have a conversation about whether, um, whether you should be able to pay a Nazi ads. Um, that doesn't feel like a moral question to me. Yes. But the question of whether you can pay to have different privacy controls feels wrong. Uh -huh. um, so that, that, to me, is um, something that, that in any conversation about about whether we'd evolve yes. towards having a subscription service. I yes. think you have to have these controls first, and it's a very deep thing, um, a technical problem to go do, but we're, that's why we're, yes. we're working through this. So long as the privacy controls that we're not able to buy our way into aren't controls that people ought to have. You know, it's just the kind of underlying question of, is the system as it is mm -hmm. that we can't opt out of a fair system? And that's, of course, you know, you have to go into the details mm -hmm. to figure out what you mean by it. But let's, um, in the remaining time we have left. How are we doing on time? We're, we're good. We're, um, we're 76 minutes in. All right, into. So, uh, we're we're, we're going to get through maybe half the topics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we're going to bring this in for a landing one. soon. I, on my agenda left uh, include such things as taking out of the box the um, uh, independent review stuff. I'll chat a little bit about that. 
Um, I'd be curious, and this might be a nice uh, thing really as we wrap up, which would be a sense of any vision you have for what would Facebook look like in mm -hmm. 10 or 15 years, mm -hmm. and how different would it be than the Facebook of 10 years ago is compared to today? So that's something I'd want to talk about. Is there anything big on your list that you want to make sure we talk about? Those are good. Those are good topics. <laughs> Fair enough. So all right. Um, uh, the external review board. Yeah. So uh, one of the big questions that, that I've just been thinking about is, you know, we make a lot of decisions around content enforcement and what stays up and what stays, what comes down. And having gone through this process over the last few years of, of, of working on the systems, one of the themes that, that I feel really strongly about is that we shouldn't be making so many of these decisions ourselves. Now, one of the, one of the ways that I try to reason about this stuff is take myself out of the position of being CEO of the company, almost like, the, uh, like a Rawlsian perspective. If I was a, a different person, what would I want the CEO of the company to be able to do? And I would not want so many decisions about, um, about content to be concentrated with any individual. It so, is weird to see big, impactful, to use a terrible word, decisions about what a huge swath of humanity does or doesn't see inevitably handled as like a customer service issue. It does feel like a mismatch, oh, which yeah, is so, what I hear so, you so, saying. So let's, yeah, so I actually think the customer service analogy is a really interesting one, right? So when you email Amazon because they don't, they, they make a mistake with your package, that's customer support, right? I mean, they, they are trying to provide a service and um, and, and generally, the, they can invest more in customer support and make people happier. Um, we're doing something completely different. Right? When someone emails us with an issue or flags some content, they're basically complaining about something that someone else in the community did. So it's more like a, um, it's, it, it, it's almost more like a court system in that sense. Doing more of that does not make people happy. Because in, in every one of those transactions, one person ends up the winner and one is the loser. Either, either you said that, that, content, um, that the content was fine, in which case the person complaining is upset, or you take someone's content down, in which case the person is really upset because you're now telling them that they don't have the ability to express something that they feel is a valid thing that they should be able to express. So in some deep sense, while some amount of what we do is customer support, people get locked out of their account, et cetera, um, you know, we now have like more than 30,000 people working on content review and safety review um, doing the kind of judgments um, that, you know, it's, it's basically a lot of the stuff, we, we have machine learning systems that flag things that could be problematic in addition to, to people in the community flagging things, but making these assessments of whether the stuff is right or not. So one of the questions that, that I just think about, it's like, okay, well, you have any people doing this, um, regardless of how much training they have, um, we're going to make mistakes, right? So you want to tr start building in principles around you know, what you would kind of think of as due process, right? So we're building in an ability to have an appeal, right, which already is, is quite good in that we are able to overturn a bunch of mistakes that the first line people make in making these, these assessments. But at some level, I think you also want a level of, of kind of independent appeal, right? Where if, okay, let's say, so, so the appeals go to maybe a higher level of, of, of Facebook employee um, who's a little more trained in the nuances of, of the policies. But at some point, I think you also need an appeal to an independent group, which is like, is this policy fair? Um, was this, like, is this piece of content really um, getting on the wrong side of the balance of free expression and safety? And 
I just don't think at the end of the day that that's something that you want centralized in a single company. So now the question is, how do you design that system? And that's a real question, right? So we don't, we don't pretend to have the answers on this. What we're basically working through is we have a, a draft proposal. We're working with a lot of experts around the world to run a few pilots in the first half of this year that can hopefully we can codify into something that's a longer term thing. But, um, but I, I just I believe that this is just an incredibly important thing. As as a as a person, if and and if I take aside the the role that I have as CEO of the company, I do not want the company being able to make all of those final decisions without a check and balance and accountability. Um, so I want to use the position that I'm in to help build that kind of an institution. Yes, and when we talk about an appeal, then it sounds like you could appeal two distinct things. One is this was the rule, but it was applied wrong to me. Mm -hmm. This, in fact, was parody, so it shouldn't yeah. be seen as near the line. And I want the independent body to look at that. The other would be the rule is wrong. The rule should change because... Yeah. And you're thinking the independent body could weigh in on both of those? Yeah, over time, I would like the role of the independent oversight board to be able to expand to do additional things as well. I think the question is, it's hard enough to even set something up that's going to codify the, the values that we have around expression um, and, and, and safety on a relatively defined topic. Yes. So I think the question is, if you kind of view this as an experiment in institution building, um, where we're, we're trying to build this kind of ins this thing that is going to have real power. To, yes. I mean, like I will not be able to make a decision that overturns what they say. Um, which I think is good. I think also just it raises the stakes. You need to make sure we get this right. Um, it's fascinating. So, I mean, it's huge. I, I think the way you're describing it, I wouldn't want to understate yeah. that this is not a usual way of doing business. Yeah, but I think, it, I think it's, this is, I really care about getting this right. Yeah. But I think you, you want to start with, um, with something that's relatively well-defined and then um, and then hopefully expand it to be able to cover more things over time. So in the beginning, I think one question that could come up is, it, my understanding, I mean, I'm, it's, it's always dangerous talking about legal precedents when I'm, I'm, this might be one of my first times at Harvard Law School. I did not spend a lot of time here um, when, I, when I was an undergrad. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, if the Supreme Court overturns something, they don't tell Congress what the law should be. They just say, um, there's an issue here. Right, and then, and then basically there's a process. All right, so if, I, if I'm getting that wrong, um, all right, I shouldn't have done that. I, no, no, it's probably, that was dangerous. Um, there are a number of people mistake. who do agree with you. Okay. Oh, so that's an open question. That's uh, it it's works. a highly debated question, yes. Mm -hmm. All right. There's the, I'm just the umpire calling balls and strikes. And in fact, the, the first type of question we, we brought up, which was, uh, hey, I, we get this as the standard, does it apply here, lends itself a little more to, you know, you get three swings, and if you miss them all, like, you can't mm -hmm. keep playing. Mm -hmm. The umpire can usher you away from the home plate. I, this is, um, I, I'm really digging deep into my knowledge mm -hmm. now of baseball. Um, there's another okay. thing about, I'm not like... the person who's going to call you out. <laughs> I, something wrong there. I appreciate that. Um, That's why I also need to have a librarian next to me. <laughs> Very good. Well, how much librarians tend to know about baseball, but we, di oh. we digress. Um, uh, we're going to get letters. Yeah. RIPR <laughs> mentions. But um, uh, whether or not the game is actually any good with a three strikes rule, maybe there should be two or four or whatever. Um, 
starts to ask of the umpire more than just, you know, your best sense of how that play just went. Both may be something, both are surely beyond standard customer service issues. Mm -hmm. So both could maybe be usefully externalized. What you'd ask the board to do in the category one kind of stuff, maybe it's true that like professional umperage could help us and Mm -hmm. there are people who are jurists who can do that worldwide. For the other, um, whether it's the Supreme Court or the so-called common law in state courts, where often a state Supreme Court will be like, henceforth, 50 feet needs to be the height of a baseball net. And like, if you don't agree, legislature, we'll hear from you. But until then, it's 50 feet. They really do kind of get into the, into the weeds. Um, they derive maybe some legitimacy from, for decisions like that from being close to their communities. And it really regresses then to a question of is Facebook a global community, a community of 2.x billion people worldwide transcending any national boundaries, and for which I think so far on these issues, mm-hmm. it's meant to be the rule is the rule. It doesn't really change the mm-hmm. terms of service from one place to another. Versus how much do we think of it as somehow localized, whether or not localized through government, yeah. but where different local communities make their own judgments? Yeah. Uh, that is one of the big questions. I mean, right now we have community standards that are global. Um, we follow local laws, right, as, yes. you, as you say. But, um, but I think the, the idea is, I don't think we want to end up in a place where we have very different norms in, in different places, but you want to have some sense of, of representation and making sure that, that the body that, that can deliberate on this is... Um, has a good diversity of views. Mm-hmm. So th- these are a lot of the things that we're trying to figure out. Is like, well, how big is the body? How um, when when decisions are made, are they made by the whole body, or is um, or is it? Do you have panels of, of 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 people that are that are smaller sets? If there are panels, how do you make sure that you're not just getting a a random um, sample that that kind of skews and the values perspective towards one thing? So then there are a bunch of mechanisms like, okay, maybe one panel that's randomly constituted decides on whether the board will take up um, a question or one of the issues, but then a separate random panel um, of, of the group actually does the decisions. That way you, you eliminate um, some risk that, um, that, that any given panel is going to be too ideologically skewed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a bunch of things that I think we need to think through and, and work through. Um, but the goal on this is to, over time, um, have it grow into something that can um, that can provide greater accountability and oversight to a lot uh, to potentially more of the hard questions that we face. But I think it's so high stakes that starting with something that's relatively defined yes. um, is going to be the right way to go in the beginning. Yes. Um, so regardless of the fact that I, that I, was, I was unaware of the, the controversy around the legal point that I, that I, that I made a second ago, I, I do think in our case it makes sense to, to start with not having this group say what the policies are going to be, but just have there be, um, ha- have it be able to say, hey, we think that this yes. um, is, is, that you guys are on the wrong yes. side on this, um, and maybe you should rethink where yes. the policy is because we think you're on the wrong side. There's one other thing that I think is worth calling out, which is in a, in a typical kind of judicial um, analog, or at least here in the US, my, my understanding, is, um, is there's the uh, 
kind of appeal route to the independent board considering an issue. But I also think that we want to have an avenue where we as the company can also just raise hard issues that come up to the board without having, which I, I don't actually know if there's any mechanism for It's called for an that. advisory opinion. Okay, but it's but under US federal law, okay. it's not allowed because of Article Three case or controversy requirement. But um, state courts do it all the time. You'll have a federal court sometimes say like, because it's a federal court, but it's deciding something under state law, it'll be like, I don't know, ask Florida. Yeah. And they'll be like, hey, Florida. And then Florida is just sure. Florida. Yeah. So, so I think that you could do an advisory that'll end, that'll end up being an important part of this, too. Yes. We're, we're never going to be able to get out of the business of making frontline judgments. Yes. We'll, we'll have the AI systems flag content that, that yes. they think is, is against policies or could be. And then we'll have people, yes. this, this set of 30,000 people, which is growing, that um, is, is trained to basically yes. understand what the policies are. We have to make the frontline decisions because a lot of this stuff needs to get handled in a timely way and a more deliberative process that's, that's thinking about the fairness and, and the policies overall should happen over a different time frame than, the, than what is often relevant, which is the enforcement of the initial policy. Yes. But I do think overall for a lot of the biggest questions, I, I just want to build a more independent yes. process. Well, as you say, it's, a, it's an area with like fractal complexity in the best of ways. Mm -hmm. And it really is terra incognito. And it'd be exciting to see yeah how it might be built out. I imagine there's a number of law professors around the world, including mm -hmm. some who come from yeah. civil rather than common law jurisdictions, who are like, you know, this is how it works over here, from which you could draw. Another lingering question would be, lawyers often have a bad reputation. I have no idea why. But they often are the glue for a system like this so that a judge does not have to be oracular or omniscient there's a process where the lawyer for one side does a ton of work and looks at prior decisions of this mm -hmm. board and says, well, this mm -hmm. is what would be consistent. And the other lawyer comes back. And then the judge just gets to decide between the two rather mm -hmm. than having to just know everything. Um, there's a huge trade-off here for every appealed content decision. Yeah. How much do we want to build it into a case? And you need experts yeah. to help the parties versus they each just sort of come before Solomon and say, yeah, this kind of happened, and you know, or Judge Judy maybe is a more <laughs> contemporary Somewhere reference. Somewhere between the two. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's a lot of stuff. And for me, I both find myself, I don't know if this is the definition of prurient, both excited by it and somewhat terrified by it, um, but very much saying that it's better than a status quo, which is where I think you and I are completely agreeing, and maybe a model for other firms out there. Um, and so that's the last question in this area. Uh, that pops to my mind, which is what part of what you're developing at Facebook, mm -hmm. a lot of which is really resource intensive, mm -hmm. is best thought of as a public good to be shared, including among basically competitors, versus that's part of our comparative advantage and our secret sauce. If you develop a particularly mm -hmm. good algorithm that can really well detect fake news or spammers or bad actors, You've got the PhDs, you've got the processors. Mm -hmm. Is that like, you know, in your face, Schmitter? Or is it like we should have somebody that, somebody, that can help democratize that advance? And it could be the same to be said for these content decisions. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, so certainly the threat sharing and security work that, you're, that you just referenced is a good area. 
where there's much better collaboration now than there was historically. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's just because everyone recognizes that it's such a more important issue. And by the way, there's much better collaboration with governments now too on this. Um, and not just our, our own here in, in the US and law enforcement, but around the world with election commissions and, and law enforcement, because there's just a broad awareness that um, that these are issues. And Especially that, if you have state actors in the mix as the adversary. Yes. Um, so that's certainly an area where, um, where there's much better collaboration now. And, and that's good. There's still issues. Um, you know, for example, if you're, if you're law enforcement or, or intelligence and you have developed a, you know, a source is not the right word, but basically if, you, if you've identified someone as a, as a source of signals that, um, that you can watch and, and learn about, then you may not want to come to us and tell us, um, hey, we've identified that this state actor is doing this, this, um, this bad thing because then you know, the, the natural thing that we're going to want to do is make sure that they're not on our system doing bad things or, or, or that they're not, either they're not in the system at all or that we're interfering with the, the bad things that they're, yes. that they're trying to do. So there's some mismatch of, um, of incentives, but as you build up the, the relationships and trust, um, you can get to that kind of a relationship where, where they can also flag for you, hey, this is, this is where we're at. Um, so I just think having that kind of baseline where you build that up over time um, is, is helpful. Uh -huh. And I think on, on security and safety is probably the biggest, the biggest area of that kind of collaboration now um, across all the different types of threats, mm -hmm. not, just, um, not just election and, yeah. and, and, and democratic process yeah. type stuff, but, um, but any kind of safety issue. Mm -hmm. The other area where I, where I tend to think about what we're doing is, um, is, is it should be open is just technical infrastructure overall. I mean, that is probably a less controversial piece, but um, but we open source a lot of the, the basic stuff that, that runs our, our systems. Um, and I think that, that is a, a, that's a contribution that, that I'm, I'm quite proud of uh, that, that we do. Um, you know, we have sort of pioneered this way of, um, of thinking about how people connect and, and, um, and, and the, the data model around that is more of a graph. Um, and the idea of graph database and, and, and a lot of the infrastructure for being able to efficiently access that kind of content, I think is broadly applicable beyond the context of a social network. Um, you know, when I, when I was, at, when I was here um, as an undergrad, even though I wasn't here for very long, I and mean, I studied psychology and computer science. And to me, I mean, my, like, my grounding philosophy on this stuff is that um, basically people should be at the center of of, of more of the, the technology that we, that, that we build. I mean, it's one of the, one of the early um, things that, that I kind of recognized when I was a student was like, at the time there were internet sites for finding almost anything you cared about, whether it's like books or music or news or information or businesses. But as people, we, we think about the world primarily in terms of other people, not in terms of other objects, not cutting things up in terms of, um, you know, content or commerce or politics or, or different things, but it's like, it's, the stuff should be organized around the connections that people have where people are at the centerpiece of that. And one of the, the missions that I, that I care about is over time just pushing more technology industry, uh, more technology development in the tech industry overall, 
um, to develop things with that mindset. Um, I, I think, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but the way that our phones work today and, and all computing systems organized around apps and tasks is like fundamentally not how people, how our brains work and how we approach the world. Um, it's, it's not, so that's one of the reasons why I'm just very excited longer term about especially things like augmented reality because it'll, it'll give us a, um, a platform that I think actually is how we think about stuff. We'll be able to bring the, the computational objects into the world, but fundamentally we'll be interacting as people around them. The whole thing won't be organized around an app or a task, it'll be organized around people. Um, and that I think is a much more natural and human um, system for how our technology should be organized. So open sourcing all of that infrastructure um, to do that and enabling not just us, but, um, but other companies to kind of get that mindset into more of their thinking and the technical underpinning of that is just something that I care really deeply about. Well, this is nice, and this is bringing us in for our landing because we're talking about you know, 10, 20, 30 yeah. years ahead. Um, as a term of art, I understand augmented reality to mean mm -hmm. I've got a visor, version 0.1 was Google Glass, something where I'm kind of out in the world, but I'm literally online at the same time yeah. because there's data coming at me in some context. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about, correct? Yeah, although it really should be glasses like what you have. You know, I think we'll probably, uh, maybe they'll have to be a little bigger, but not too much bigger, else it would start to get weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think a visor is going to catch. I don't think that that's, um, I, don't, I don't think anyone is. And anything involving surgery nature. starts to sound a little bad, too. No, no, we're definitely focused on, on external things. <laughs> although, like, don't although, make news, don't make news, don't make news. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, although, you know, we have showed this demo of basically, um, can someone type by thinking? And of course, when, you, when you're talking about brain-computer interfaces, there's two dimensions of that work. There's like the external stuff and there's the internal stuff and invasive. And, um, and, and yes, of course, if you're actually trying to build um, things that everyone is going to use, you're going to want to focus on the non-invasive yes, techniques. Yes, yes. <laughs> can you type by thinking? And you can. It's called a Ouija board. No, it's, um, but you, you're sub-vocalizing enough where there's no, enough no, no. of a read I, of a... So, so there's actually a bunch of the research here. There, there's a question of, of throughput and how quickly can you type and how many bits can you, um, can, can you express efficiently. But the, the basic foundation for the research is um, you know, someone, uh, a, a bunch of, of folks who are doing this research um, showed a bunch of people images, I think it was animals, right? So here's an elephant, here's a giraffe, while having kind of a net on their head um, that, um, non-invasive, but, but shining light and, and therefore looking at um, the level of, of blood activity and, and, and just blood flow and activity in the brain, um, trained a, a machine learning system basically on what the pattern of that imagery looked like when the person was looking at different animals, then um, told the person to think about an animal Right, so think about, just pick one of the animals to think about and can predict what the person was thinking about in broad strokes, um, just based on, on, on matching the, the neural activity. So the question is, so you can use that to, to type. Um, the Fifth Amendment implications are staggering. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, yes, I mean, presumably this would be something that someone would choose to use yes. as a product. Yes, um, I'm, I'm not, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yes, there's, there's of course all the, the other implications, but, um, 
but yeah, I think that this is going to be that's going to be an interesting thing down the line. But basically, your vision then for a future. I don't know how we got on to this. <laughs> <laughs> you can't blame me. I think you brought this up. I did. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like of all the things that I thought we were going to talk, I mean, this is this is exciting. But, but it's like we haven't even uh, we haven't even covered yet how how um, we should talk about like tech regulation and all this stuff I figured we'd get into. I mean, we'll be here for like six or seven hours. <laughs> how, many, how many days do you want to spend here talking We're about We're here this, at the Zuckerberg yeah, no, Citroen hostage crisis. <laughs> <laughs> the building is surrounded. Um, yeah. But... I think a little bit on, on, on future tech and research Please. is interesting too. So yeah, we're, good. we're good. Oh, we did cover this. You're saying you weren't. Yeah. No, I mean, but, but I mean, going back to your question about like yeah. what to kind of probably to to, to um, if, if this is the last topic, the you know what what I'm excited about for the next ten or twenty years. I do think over the long term reshaping our computing platforms to be fundamentally more about people and how we process mm. the world mm. is a really fundamental thing. Over the nearer term, so call it you know, five years, um, I think the clear trend is towards more private communication. If you look at um, all of the different ways that people want to share and communicate across the, the internet, but we have a, a good sense of the cross-section, everything from one-on-one -on -one messages to kind of broadcasting publicly, um, the thing that is growing the fastest is private communication, right? So between WhatsApp and Messenger um, and, and Instagram now, you know, just the, the number of private messages is it's about a hundred billion a day, um, and, and through those systems alone, um, growing very quickly, um, growing much faster than the amount that people want to share or broadcast into a feed type system. Um, of the type of broadcast content that people are doing, the thing that is growing by far the fastest is stories, right? So ephemeral sharing of I, I'm going to put this out, but I want to have a time frame um, after which the data goes away. So I think that just gives you a sense of where the hub of social activity is going. Um, it, it also is is you know how we're thinking about the strategy of the company. I mean, people when we talk about privacy, I think a lot of the questions are often about privacy policies and, and legal or, or policy type things and, and, and privacy as a thing not to be breached, right? And, and making sure that you're, you're like within the bounds of what is good. Um, but, but I actually think that there's a much more, there's another element of this that's really fundamental, which is that people want tools that give them new contexts to communicate. And that's, that's also fundamentally about um, about giving people power through privacy, um, not just not violating privacy, right? So not violating policies of privacy as a backstop, but actually, like you can kind of think about all the success that that Facebook has had. Um, this is kind of a counterintuitive thing, has been because we've given people new um, private or semi-private ways to communicate things that they wouldn't have had before. Um, so it's. So, so thinking about Facebook as an innovator in privacy is certainly not the mainstream view. But, um, but you know, going back to the very first thing that we did, making it so Harvard students could communicate in a way that they had some confidence that their content and information would be shared with only people within that community, there was no way that people had to communicate stuff at that scale, but, but not have it either be completely public or with just a small set of people before. And, People's desire to be understood and express themselves and be able to communicate with, with all different kinds of groups is, in, in the experience that I've had, nearly unbounded. Um, and if you can give people new ways to be able to communicate safely and express themselves, um, then 
that is something that people just have a deep thirst and, 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 and desire for. So encryption is really important because I mean, we take for granted in the US that there's good rule of law, but, and, and, and that the government isn't, isn't you know, too much in our business. Yes. But in a lot of places around the world, um, especially where WhatsApp is the biggest, people can't take that for granted. So yes. having it so that um, you, know, you, you really have confidence that you're sharing something one-on-one -on -one and it's not, and it really is one-on-one, -on -one, it's not one-on-one -on -one and the government there, um, actually makes it so people can share things that they wouldn't be comfortable otherwise doing it. That's, that's power that you're giving people through building privacy innovations. Um, stories, I just think, is another example of this um, where there are a lot of things that people don't want as part of the permanent record but want to express. And it's not an accident that that is um, becoming the primary way that people want to share with all of their friends, not putting something in a feed that goes on their permanent record. There will always be a use for that too. People want to have a record and they, there's a lot of value that you can build around that. You can have longer term discussions. It's harder to do that around stories. There's, there's different value for these things. But over the next five years, I think we're going to see all of this of social networking kind of be reconstituted around um, this base of private communication. And that's something that I'm just very excited about. I think that that's like, it's going to unlock a lot of people's ability to express themselves and communicate things that they haven't had the tools to do before. And it's going to be the foundation for building a lot of, um, of, of really important tools on top of that. So too. that, I mean, that's so interesting to me. I would not have predicted that direction for the next five years. I would have figured, gosh, if you already know with whom you want to speak, there are so many tools to speak with them, some of which are end-to-end, -end, some of which aren't, some of which are roll your own and open source. And there's always a way to try to make that easier and better. Um, but that feels a little bit to me like a kind of crowded space, not yet knowing of the innovations that might lie ahead in means of mm -hmm. communicating with the people you already know you want to talk to. And for that, as you say, if that's where it's at, you're right that encryption is going to be a big question. And otherwise, technical design so that if the law comes knocking on the door, what would the company be in a position to say? This is the Apple iPhone Cupertino, uh, sorry, San Bernardino case. And uh, it also calls to mind, will there be peer-to-peer -peer implementations of the things you're thinking about mm -hmm. that might not even need the server at all? Mm -hmm. And it's basically just an app that people use. Yeah. And if it's going to deliver an ad, it can still do that app side, and how much governments will abide it. They have not, for the most part, demanded technology mandates to reshape how the technology works. They're just saying, if you've got it, in part you've got it because you want to serve ads, yeah. we want it, but if you don't even have it, mm -hmm. it's been rare for the governments to say, well, you've got to build your system to do it. It did happen with the telephone system back in the day. CALEA, the Communications Assistance mm -hmm. to Law Enforcement Act, did have Federal law in the United States saying, if you're in the business of building a phone network, AT&T, you've got to make it so we can plug in as you go digital. And we haven't yet seen those mandates in the internet software side uh, so much. So we could see that coming up again. But it's, it's so funny, because if you'd asked me, I would have figured it's encountering people you haven't met before mm -hmm. and interacting with them for which all of the stuff about air traffic control of what goes into your feed and how much your stuff gets shared, mm -hmm. all of those issues start to rise to the fore. And it gets me thinking about, I ought to be able to make a feed recipe that's my recipe and mm -hmm. fills it according to Facebook variables, but I get to say what the variables are. But I could see that if you're just thinking about people communicating with the people they already know and like, that is a very different realm. It's not, not necessarily, it's not just the people that you already know. I do think 
you know, we've really focused on friends and family for the mm. last 10 or 15 years. And mm. I, I, I think a big part of what we're gonna focus on now is around building communities in different ways and all the mm. things, all the utility that you can build on top of once you have a network like this in place. So everything from um, how people can do commerce better um, to things like dating, right? Which is, a lot of dating happens on our services, but we don't, um, we haven't built any tools specifically for that. Um, I do remember the Facebook joint experiment, experiment's such a terrible word, um, study, um, by which uh, one could predict when two Facebook uh, members are going to declare themselves in a relationship months ahead of the actual <laughs> declaration. I was thinking some of the yeah, ancillary products for in-laws could be- very early. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, you're right that, there's, that a lot of this is gonna be about utility that you can build on top of it. Yeah. But a lot of these things are fundamentally private, right? So if, if, you, if you're thinking about commerce, um, that people have a higher expectation for privacy, um, and the question is, is the right con context for that going to be around an app like Facebook, which is broad, or an app like Instagram? I think part of it is, the discovery part of it, I think will be very well served there, but then we'll also transition to something mm. that people want to be more private and secure. Mm. Anyhow, we could probably go on for like many hours Indeed. on this, but, um, but maybe we should save the, this for, for, the, for the round two of this that we'll do in the future. Indeed. So um, thanks so much for coming out, for talking at such length, for oh, covering such a kaleidoscopic range of topics. And um, we look forward to the next time we see you. Yeah, thank thanks. You. Thank you.